1: Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com
0: slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE.
1: My career has pretty much been based on filling in the gaps, filling in where there wasn't um, opportunity or community. So I always have looked around to see who's in the room. And when I see people of color missing, then I hone in on what are the strategies that we need to invite them to make them feel welcome.
2: Welcome to the Black Business of Broadway, a podcast brought to you by the Broadway League and Black to Broadway. Here, we highlight the stories, how to's, and successes of the Black professionals and legends of Broadway. I'm your host, Janine Scott. I'd like to welcome our guest who has been referenced many times throughout the podcast, Donna Walker Kuhn. Donna is president of Walker International Communications Group, a boutique marketing and audience development consulting agency. Thank you for joining us today. I'm super excited to have you. Donna, I know you graduated from Howard University School of Law but you aren't practicing family law. For the past 30 years, you've been leading the way in the arts administration world and have literally written the book on audience development. How and why did you decide to pivot?
1: Well, thank you. And thank you so much for this opportunity to have conversation with you. I'm one of your fans and delighted to expand our understanding of audience development together. Um, I grew up as a dancer, you know, in Chicago and performed and taught uh, with a dance company for many years, the Julian Swain Inner City Dance Theater. And then later, my sisters and I, along with some other friends, founded another dance company called Nezwa Dance Corps, which is still very much in existence and has a junior corps, performs and teaches in Chicago. So that grain was so deeply entrenched in my life. Even, you know, going to law school, which was following a passion I've had ever since, you know, I was a teenager. I wanted to change the world. That was my goal, I'm going to change okay. the world. Okay. Mm-hmm. What's the best platform to do that? Well, I think maybe law might be that. And so I danced all through law school. I choreographed a musical for Georgetown Law School. I produced our talent show. I took ballet classes every morning at 7 a.m. Hmm. So that never went away. But when I got married and moved to New York and started working as assistant corporation counsel, I did feel as if I had to make a decision. Plus, I didn't really know dancers that were generating um, a, a living that would be comfortable from being a professional dancer. So I just felt, okay. so let's just let's practice law and you can look at dance from afar. But that wasn't enough. And fortunately, one of my colleagues at Family Court recommended the Thelma Hill Performing Arts Center, which was directly across the street from Family Court, and said, why don't you go over there and see what's cooking? So I did. The moment I walked in the office, I just saw my career. I saw my future. I saw my life. Because there were papers everywhere. There were posters of performances and shows. And I thought, well, at the very least, I can organize this space. Let me just concentrate on that on my lunch hour this is all lunch hour activity oh my goodness (laughs) but the lunch hour started to extend and it's now four o'clock and judges are looking for counsel walker and where is she oh she's across the street so i thought okay i think i have found my mission and because i was teaching myself how to be an arts administrator during my lunch hour while prosecuting juveniles And so I was reading what I was filing. So I taught myself about writing a press release, how to write a grant proposal. What does a budget look like? How do you write a proposal in general? But all those things I kind of taught myself because I didn't know about any of these academic programs that we all have now that I teach in, you know, at NYU and Columbia. So, um, you know, I wrote a grant. Uh, A proposal to pay myself a salary as the managing director of the Thelma Hill Performing Arts Center. That really formally launched my career. Um, And then I was still, you know, very much yearning to be in the world of dance and my world very much was Afrocentric. And so I uh, wrote a letter. I didn't have a resume. I wrote a letter to Arthur Mitchell, who was then the artistic director and founder of Dance Theatre of Harlem. And I just said in the letter, you need me. And I have all these different skills I'm sure I could be an asset. And the day my letter arrived, the marketing director for dance theater had resigned and it was two weeks before their city center season when ticket sales were very low. So Mr. Mitchell called me and he said, I got your letter, can you sell tickets? I said, yes, and I was hired. And that began my nine year journey with the dance theater of Harlem, traveling around the world Uh, building African-American audiences for the company and developing new initiatives in audience development. So that was really the core um, that that established the foundation of my work. Wow. Wow.
2: No, no, seriously. I mean, because it it talks about your passion and your purpose and how sometimes Mm -hmm. there's just that thing inside of you that you just can't run from, no matter how hard you try you just exactly. can't run from your calling, right?
1: That's right. That's right.
2: Well, I'm glad you were called and I'm glad you answered. So during your rise, you know, what opportunities were you able to capitalize on? Uh, when And if there were none or when there were none, how did you create your own way, your own path?
1: Well, that's a great question because my career has pretty much been based on filling in the gaps, filling in where there wasn't um, opportunity or community. So I always have looked around to see who's in the room. And when I see people of color missing, then I hone in on what are the strategies that we need to invite them to make them feel welcome. And so that's what I did at Dance Theater of Harlem. You know, my career actually was a result of one question. We were in, I think Cincinnati on tour and Mr. Mitchell, We were looking at the house, the audience, and Mr. Mitchell turned to me and he said, Donna, where are the black people? And I looked at him and I said, I don't know. So then I went to the presenters and I started asking, what are you doing to engage the black community? And the majority of them said, well, we don't really quite know what to do. We want them, but we have not mastered what that should look like. So that's when I decided, well, that's what I'm going to do. And so that became my focus. And that's when I built the National uh, Audience Development Task Force for Dance Theater of Harlem. We increased our earned revenue by 45%. Wow. And I remember I traveled to all the cities we went to in the United States, and I would go six months in advance of the performance date and build an audience development committee, empowering leadership and influencers in the Black community to own the work. And no one had done that before. There's a difference between putting out flyers, running ads, and saying, buy tickets. My conversation was, because of you, this will be a success. Because of you, we will be able to really build legacy with African Americans experiencing and enjoying Dance Theater of Harlem. So it was a very different conversation. And no one ever said no to me as I built these different committees all over the country. I don't recall anyone ever saying no. If they did, I didn't hear it because I was very clear, this is the path. This is how we're going to transform who attends the arts and also so that we can remove this feeling of being elite and not being for people of color. So that has always been my focus since that time. So those opportunities have continued to develop. So when I went to the public theater, you know, George invited me to come, I continued that sense of mission there and I took that to Broadway with me as well.
2: So I'm glad, I'm glad you mentioned that because in the book, and I say you literally wrote the book because you did write the book on audience development uh, called Invitation to the Party. I believe that this book is, is a blueprint for how to engage audiences, not just Black audiences, but how to engage audiences. And it talks mm-hmm. about the commitment that one has to make. But I want to go to a conversation that you had, and you just talked about George Seawolf at the Public Theater, mm-hmm. uh, one of the producers of Bring in the Noise, "Bringing the Funk uh, with Savion Glover. And he said to you, I want the theater to look and feel like a subway stop in New York City. Can you expand on that vision it, because that was in 1996 and That's right. and and here we are in 2022 how do you how do you see that vision playing out now or do you think it's still
1: um, relevant Oh, absolutely. It's extremely relevant. It's necessary. It's critical. Um, so that conversation was in my first meeting with George. George left a message on my voice machine at those days when we had voice machines uh, before cell phones. <laughs> and <clears throat> I had heard about George. This is what was so interesting. I had heard about this African American writer, director, you know, uh, Jelly's Last Jam, you know, Tony nominated. He won the Tony Awards for Um, Angels of America, he's now running the public theater, color museum you can't even get a ticket for. And I just thought, oh my goodness, if I could ever meet this this person, that would just be really amazing. So when I got the voicemail, I actually thought it was a joke. I just thought, why in the world would he call me? I just couldn't imagine that. Hmm. And so of course, I called back and he said, yeah, you know, I heard about you. Can you come in? So, of course, I was already, I had my little favorite black and white polka dot dress. I could still see the whole meeting. This was in 93. I can still see it, have my polka dot dress, my little purse, have my heels. And I was just so excited to be able to sit and meet with George. You know, George is so affable. He's so comfortable. I mean, you can you just... He's in his skin so deeply that you go even deeper into yours. Wow. He's an absolutely extraordinary individual. I don't know if anyone has the opportunity to be in the orbit of George C. Wolf. You're incredibly fortunate. And so when we started talking and George said, yeah, you know, I've been here three months and I noticed the audiences are predominantly white. And I'd like this place to look like a subway stop. How would you do it? Well, at this point, I was extremely confident in how I can engage African-Americans for ballet. So I knew I could encourage them to come and see theater, and I expanded the model. And I talked about our Latino community, our Asian American, our LGBTQ, our youth, and our seniors. I said so those demographics, I believe, I can apply this template to in varying ways. But certainly, um, I think I can be effective with that, you know. And, and I was just dreaming out loud. I really was. I had no idea he wanted to offer me a role a position, and so uh, he said thank you. I was like, oh, how lovely. So I took me and my little polka dot dress and we left. It. And I thought, well, that was wonderful. And then a week later, George called and said, When can you start? How many staff do you need? And what would you like to call your department? So I looked at the phone, I said, once again, this must be a joke. People don't get these kind of offers. But then I did. And I and so I really struggled to leave Dance Theatre of Harlem because that had been my life. That was my identity. I loved ballet. I loved dance. I loved the company. I loved Mr. Mitchell. But George was offering me the world. He was offering me a broader landscape, a different genre. I knew nothing about theater. I'm a different neighborhood. I'm now in the village as opposed to Harlem. And I just felt my life was ready to grow. So I said yes. And that began nine years of working side-by-side side with George every single day with the vision of creating a subway stop. I walked in the door with that, I left in the evening with that, and that's what I dreamt about. I did have the bandwidth in my life uh, to totally embrace um, the work and the artists, and we had such incredible artists that were coming through. That's where I met Ruben, Santiago Hudson. Oh, that's where okay. I met Jessica Hagador. that's where I met so many people that were all in George's orbit. And so and I had access to them. We were working with Rosie Perez on a play. And I said, Rosie, I'm going to need you to come with me to various community uh, events so that we can engage people and, and talk to them about the play. She was like, yes, let's go. We hopped in her little SUV and we were off. You know, and so did the same. Susan Laurie Parks, I worked on all five of her plays at the public. And the first one, I didn't have a clue what that was about. And I told George. Uh, what was it, the American, she's one of our country's greatest playwrights and we're going to do her work. So I translated that as, take your time, you'll figure it out. So I started to to, I decided, let me get to know her. And we started to have lunch and I would take her to different events and Barnes & Noble's had just opened on Astor Play, so I would take her there to um, do readings from some of her, her plays. We were the first to actually bring the concept of artists reading scripts at, at Barnes & Noble. Um, and, you know, I just realized, oh, this is the process. This is how she thinks. This is how she tells the story. And I also shared with her the response I was hearing from the uh, audiences, and they're struggling to really understand the depth of her work. Clearly, we could see the brilliance, but we didn't necessarily understand what the play was about. It was the America play. Each one just evolved into understanding it more clearly. So by the time we did Top Dog, Underdog, I literally did not have to pick up the phone. The calls were coming in so fast and furious. Um, Of course, it didn't hurt that we had Don Cheadle and Jeffrey Wright and George directing. Right. But there was... Ownership that people have with her work because they had followed her for those five plays. And together we have figured out how do we embrace, understand, and celebrate Susan Laurie Park. So that's an example of an institution committing to an artist and, and making, you know, this uh, a primary uh, a primary objective that we're going to do the work and we're going to take the time. We're going to understand the artist so we can celebrate and engage as many audience and communities as possible. And I was standing next to Susan Lurie when she got the call that she had won the Pulitzer Prize. And we we already had the champagne champagne there. We were hoping it would happen. But it was just such a, a wonderful moment of going from, I don't know what this is, to fantastic. And now the world is acknowledging it as well. So um, I think I
2: answered the question. yeah, no, you you know you you totally <laughs> answered the question and i I want to hear all 40 years worth okay. of your stories too oh Be- because we oh. because there's something to learn, you know and <laughs> yes, and absolutely. we 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 the younger, the next generation um yep. are relying on on you on your on this on the season folks like yourself you all are are you all have created a blueprint for us to follow you are yes. saying these are these are these are the paths to go and these are the paths not to go or if you choose to go these are the things that you need to know if you're going that direction so yes. i appreciate hearing the stories that that you and lady irene Gandhi and all of you have have to share yes. with us because th- there is there is a breadth of knowledge there that I, we we have to capture, otherwise we're we're going to lose it, um, and and I don't I don't want that to happen.
0: This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this: for the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than they're worth in real cash value. Just go to ramp.com slash easy ramp.com slash easy ramp.com slash easy cards issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of IC terms and conditions apply.
2: But, but getting back, sorry, I, I, I digress. <laughs> <laughs> getting back though, when would you say, I mean, in, in creating this subway stop, would you say that yes. part of creating an inclusive atmosphere correlates with diversifying those offstage positions?
1: Yes, because we would not have needed to have this effort of audience development were the environment inclusive, and it was not. And so that's what these efforts were designed to do, was to open up the space and people feel welcome from the very beginning, from when they leave their home. It's also about community. So what are the points of engagement? Is it dialogue before? Is it dialogue after? You know, all of that. I think we need. So that's, that's how you kind of build that audience development. I think that is very much needed today. You know, certainly in the wake of the murder of George Floyd, you know, the, the, the reality and the facts of racism that exists in every sector of our society became incredibly clear at that time. And so as we put the mirror up to all of our industries, we look at the arts, we look at Broadway, we realize that that's a reflection of the society so how do we change that so yes we very much need this inclusive kind of effort you know i applaud all of my colleagues in the field who are, who are working commercial world and nonprofit who are really assiduously focused on how can we create these experiences how can we make the voices of our communities heard as part of these experiences in theater I think it's fantastic. it's wonderful.
2: yeah and the Broadway mm-hmm. League has a program, Broadway Bridges, where we try to make sure that every high school student sees at least um, one broadway one Broadway play and I think I think that along with ex- everything that you're talking about is just mm-hmm. one 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 more piece of one more piece of the pie because I think if we show them. And, and we expose it, we expose them to it. Uh, then they start to create their own experiences and and maybe yeah. and maybe it'll spark a it'll spark an interest, it'll spark a passion as it as it did with with you and I. Exactly. Mm-hmm. But they have to know that there that these positions and these jobs exist, that there are black producers, that there are black directors, choreographers, That's... stage managers. Mm-hmm. Company managers, general managers, so on and so forth. And so um, in addition to running an international business and yeah. the work that you do with NJPAC, New Jersey Performing Arts Center, uh, you also serve as an adjunct professor at NYU in Columbia And so Mm -hmm. why is teaching and and cultivating these future arts administrators and hopefully these future Broadway employees, why is that personal to you?
1: So I have three missions in life. I think everyone should know their mission and live by that. So my first mission is to develop the next generation of arts administrators who have a sensibility for what it means to have diversity in the arts community. What does that mean and look like? Um, And as I continue to move throughout different sectors, because I work in all the industries, theater, dance, visual arts, music, uh, classical music, um, I would see it's the same. It was almost like the same narrative for each of those industries. Who's missing? Why aren't they coming? What can we do? And I thought, well, I can complain about that, or I can take action. And being a woman of action, I decided, well, the best place is in the classroom before they start working in the field and while they're still open to learning. And so when I was at the public theater, I uh, contacted uh, NYU and just said, you know, I'm a marketer. You know, I was born marketing. I've been selling art since I was five, six years old. So I, this is just it's, it's instinctive to me. Um, In addition to, of course, having the skills and being surrounded by wonderful marketers that I can continue to learn from. But I started at NYU in 1993, uh, teaching in their School of Continuing Professional Studies. And then I was invited to teach in the uh, Graduate Program of Arts Administration, which I've been in now, I guess, probably 20 years. Um, And the primary reason I was teaching, in addition to what I shared as my mission, I also wanted to be able to impact uh, arts administrators of color. But that's not really the student population that I have. Rarely may have a student of color. Um, And that has been something that has been disappointing. Uh, But it, it also just encourages me to make sure that the ones that I have, whoever's in front of me, that I can instill these principles. So right. all of my classes are focused on what you read an invitation to the party. That's that's who I am. And so they they get that 100 percent. You know, I designed in my you invited me to design a new course uh, three years ago, which is uh, diversity, equity and inclusion for uh, performing visual arts. And in this course, you know, I focus on teaching what D.I.A. means diversity. I'm sorry, D.E.I. means. And then we focus on community engagement. And so I actually take my class to visit different organizations that are doing this kind of work so they can see visibly what it takes, what are the resources, and how maybe they can plant themselves in those environments to really start to change the field. Everybody wants the bright lights and say that I work on Broadway. That's great. But there's so many other experiences, too. And we don't have just one career. I'm in my eighth career. So you can do all of it. hmm And so I am focused on raising this next generation of arts administrators that can have the kind of impact that will enable our world to be more humanistic and to be more inclusive. That is why I'm in the classroom throughout the year, teaching at two universities simultaneously, (laughs) grading these papers at the same time, working and running my company. But this is my commitment. I also um, teach biannually at Bank Street College. Um, And when I first started teaching, I created a certificate program at Fordham University because I was teaching there. And this was in the Graduate School of Business. And I, again, had recognized that the few people of color I knew at that time that were in mid-level positions didn't have a pathway to, to go up to senior staff or to executive staff. Mm-hmm. And so my certificate program was an eight-week program that was co-taught by lecturers that I brought in and faculty from the grad School of Business at Fordham. And we ran that for three years certificate program. And I still run into many of my students who say, I got my certificate. I still have it. It's framed on my wall. But I will tell you that the majority of my students are doing quite well today. So leadership, critical, critical. We have to instill uh, leadership skills, and a sense of place that I have every right, every authority to be in the room where decisions are being made. I'm not even talking about folks that are just picking up the phone. That's a very important job. But when I'm talking about changing the field, you have to have authority and you need to be signing checks. So that's my my focus is to help develop and direct that kind of energy. Um, Primarily for people of color, but frankly, I teach whoever's in front of me.
2: Right, right. So you said you said you. Um, there are there are two prongs to your mission. Oh, I'm sorry, uh, my great. mission.
1: Yeah, your mission. Yes. Uh-huh. Thank you. Thank you. No Thank you. No problem. So okay, so it's it's a mission with the arts. The second one is. Um. um fostering support and interest for adoption because my daughter's adopted. And I think that that is just the most beautiful way to create family. So I'm always advocating for Uh adoption. And I my dream one day that there there won't be any kids to be adopted because everybody got one. (laughs) I love it. Um, So so that one. And then, you know, my third uh, mission in life is to always be a person who can make a difference in the environment where I'm at uh, and to be a person that leaves people feeling better than before I came and how I do that, you know, from my heart, um, from my, you know, Buddhist practice, Mm -hmm. you know, that enables me to always, always think about being the best person I can and elevating my life condition to be a person um, that people want to be around. And so I, I live by those principles. And I will,
2: I will concur because the moment I met you and we we had a zoom call because of pandemic um, mm-hmm. you it was like okay what do you need how can I help you to be successful call me anytime yes. and you are always there and then we got to meet in person and again always there you put me in contact with with the other movers and shakers like yourself and it the the welcome, the welcoming that you extended to me, not even knowing me, just 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 knowing that I was coming, I am so grateful. And I, the fact that I get to have you in my life, I mean, whether you know it or not, you you are a mentor to me and to so many others. And we stand so much taller because we're we're on your shoulders. And so I want to say to you that I appreciate you and I am grateful to have you uh, in my life. So you do live that mission and I and I am very appreciative of that. Um, oh, I was so
1: excited when I heard about you. I was like, oh, I'm going to call her because I know how challenging this work can be and not everybody might be supportive. And I wanted you to know who your allies are from the jump. Really important to know who's in the room. So, yes, I made that a, a personal commitment.
2: But you not only helped me professionally, but you helped me personally with getting acclimated and oh, yes. getting my daughter acclimated. And I mean, so you didn't have to do that. You could have just you could have just approached me on a professional level. But you looked at me as a whole person. A person. Yes. So I'm just so what I'm exactly. saying is you live. You are living. You're living
1: and and I'm proof that you're living that mission. I should tell you my second book, um, Champions for the Arts, uh, Successful Strategies for Building Anti-Racist Arts Organizations, will be out on June 1st. Oh,
2: I didn't know that.
1: Are you going to have a release party? Yes. <laughs> Yay. I'm coming. Uh, absolutely. I, <laughs> my goal is to have Champions for the Arts parties all over the country, saluting people and organizations who celebrate the arts. That's, that's what I want to do. My, this book is focused on community engagement. As you know, my first book was Audience Development, Mm -hmm. and this book is on community engagement, really looking at how we build access to arts and culture uh, throughout the country. So that's coming. Can you
2: you talk a little bit about the themes of, a little bit more about the themes of your upcoming book, or are you waiting?
1: (laughs) Sure. So, audience development is transactional. You know, the focus is to get people to buy tickets. We have a target demographic and we're gonna create some events so they can purchase the tickets. But after the show, then, then we're done. It's particularly on Broadway, whenever the show closes, there's nothing that connects um, that community to the next show until you get another set of producers and GMs and PR and ad agencies and you build it again. With community engagement, the deliverables are not sales. The focus is access. So in other words, our communities, and this is particularly for black and brown communities, to understand how they can have access to the arts oftentimes means, well, I need to see it where it's comfortable for me. We expect people to respond to our ad and come buy a ticket and come and see it. Or I may not be ready for that yet. I don't know where it is. I don't know what it is, what's it about. Or you know, how am I supposed to carry myself while I'm there? I'm not sure about all that. So when we bring it to them, in the community meaning dance workshops or staged readings or literary events in collaboration with libraries. those are ways that we're building participation where people are where they live. That's community engagement so that the metrics for that are you know the, the how we change perceptions of the arts uh, the social media, conversations and chat that goes on about oh I saw so and so yeah she was in my neighborhood oh we went to the store yeah I saw her how the arts can start to be that thread mm-hmm. for those kinds of experiences and not having the pressure of how many tickets did you sell Does that changes the whole approach it just does and not it's not a judgment it's just an explanation of different ways that we can build audiences for the arts so I have Noticed, uh, you know, since 2014, there has been a concentrated effort of community engagement amongst the performing arts centers around the country. We meet now uh, bi monthly, all the PACs by Zoom to share our best practices in community engagement because they now, the majority of the 35 performing arts centers around the country now are doing some form of community engagement, whether they have a separate department or it's a part of arts education or part of marketing. And so we have now created this field of community engagement. And I developed the second uh, community engagement department in the country at New Jersey Performing Arts Center in 2014 when we had a vice president, which was me, dedicated budget and staff. Mm. And so Mm. since that time, you know, it has really been evolving quickly because there's an understanding within the performing arts industry that the more we invest in our communities, the more we're going to see the results from engagement and people actually wanting to come because they feel I'm a part of this. I know what it's about. I know so-and-so. Yes, I know her. And so that makes such a difference. And so I wrote about it because, you know, and I started the book, actually I wrote the book before the pandemic. Then so once the pandemic hit, I had to rewrite the book because it needed to reflect what it's like to do this in the time of COVID. And TCG is my publisher, and they, they, so they really encouraged me to do that. I was like, okay. And then after the murder of George Floyd, I had to go back into it and really focus it on anti-racism and how Dei efforts can also be are, are also very, very important towards building audiences.
2: Donna, it has been amazing, as it always is chatting with you. And at the end of each podcast, we like to ask one final question, and it is what is one piece of advice you'd like to share with the black future leaders of Broadway?
1: I would say, Place yourself in the room where decisions are being made to step into your power because people like me, Lady Irene, have opened those doors. You don't have to open them anymore. You step right on in and sit down. And I would say to educate yourself about the genre, make sure you know what you're talking about, understand marketing and publicity, social media, be smart, be really smart. That means polish polish your skills. Don't just walk in there because you're cute. Walk in there because you've got the knowledge and that gives you the authority to have the seat and speak up. Speak up during the meetings. Don't wait. Use your voice. Use your power because we're all there with you. We're surrounding you. I want them to know that. I want to thank our guests
2: and you, our listeners, you could have been doing anything else, but you chose to spend your time with me, and I am grateful. Be sure to subscribe at bpn.fm slash BBB so you'll never miss an episode. While you're at it, tell a friend. I'm your host, Janine Scott, and we at the Broadway League hope you enjoyed this episode of The Black Business of Broadway.